So tonight is letter number three in book four. And it's the first of many letters about tzedakah. Over half of the letters in book four, there's 32 letters, over half of them are about tzedakah. Tzedakah was, no doubt, a foremost issue on the Alter Rebbe's mind. He obsessed over tzedakah. He writes elsewhere that tzedakah is the solution to all of our problems nowadays in exile. It used to be, in the times of the temple, people were able to daven with full concentration. People were able to learn with full devotion. Today, we're incapable of that. But what we are capable of is giving extraordinarily. And tzedakah, he said, any people that came to him with any issues across the board, tzedakah was the way to solve it. And he didn't just preach it, he practiced it. The Alter Rebbe, even before he went to his teacher, the Magid of Mezrich, even before that, you know, it was before he was introduced formally to the ways of Hasidus, he displayed an incredible generosity. He was, of course, a Talmudic genius, very well known throughout the region. And he got a shidduch set up with the daughter of the wealthiest man in the area. And as was the custom of Jewish people in those days, the father-in-law gave a very hefty dowry to the chassan, to the, new, to, to the new groom, to kind of set him on his feet for the first while in his marriage so he could learn you know, without any daigis, without any worry. And then later, he would get a job or what have you. And the Alter Rebbe knew that he was going to get an incredible sum, enormous, 5,000 ruble. It was the equivalent of today. It just high five figures and today high five figures won't get you much places but in those days it was when high five figures was money exactly and he told his father-in-law that he will take the dowry on one condition that he would decide the terms of what was to be done with the money with his wife's agreement and the father-in-law could not mix in you have no say. You're giving me as a complete gift, and I get to do with it what I want. So the father-in-law agreed, and he spoke it over with his wife, the Alter Rebbe, and they decided that they're going to give every penny away to the poor. They divided the big sum into smaller sums, gave a bunch of people loans, and that was it. They lived in poverty. The Alter Rebbe himself lived in poverty for the rest of his life, simply because he put tzedakah at the top of the list. And of all tzedakahs, the Alter Rebbe loved all causes, but there was one cause that was especially close to his heart, and that was the tzedakah that would support the Hasidim that were living in Israel. People think it's a Zionist concept of Jews moving to Israel. It, it, it's historically, whenever Jews had the opportunity, they would move to Israel. The thing was, since it was not under our leadership, uh, it was a very poor place. There was barely anything to allow you to make a living. And so Jews that went to live in Israel were basically completely dependent on other communities outside for support. So they would go, but then there would be what they would call a kolel. Today we know a kolel is a place where people sit and learn. A kolel literally means a gathered community. There would be people that would get together out, outside of Israel and they would commit to supporting a given group of people or a given city in Israel so they could live. And every year somebody would come 
either from Israel or somebody would travel from this community to Israel and deliver the funds, and that was how they survived. In 1777, four or five years after the Magad of Mizrich passed away, um, the first group of Hasidim made their way to the Holy Land. They were led by a great tzaddik whose name was Rabbi Mendel Haradaker, Rabbi Mendel of Haradak. The Alter Rebbe even considered going with them at one point. In the end, it didn't pan out. But this Rebbe Mendel led the first contingency of Chabad Hasidim to the Holy Land. And the Alter Rebbe, who stayed behind in Russia, took it upon himself to support this community of Hasidim. He called it Kolel Chabad. Originally, it was more inclusive. It was supporting all the Hasidim. But in 1788, 10 years later, it, it became just a Chabad thing because the other communities had taken it upon themselves, and he was supporting Chabad. Till today, this tzedakah exists. It's called Kolel Chabad, and uh, people still support it. It supports communities and Jewish families that are living in Israel. So the Alter Rebbe was... Huh? Where did they live? They, lived, they first went to Tiberia, Tiberias. Later on, they went to Tzfat. That's where they... That was the two cities that they lived in. Um, and the Alter Rebbe was the man in charge. So you think the Alter Rebbe, genius, Rebbe, leader, innovator, you know, writing the Tanya and busy collecting money, fundraising for, for Jewish people to have money in Israel. And not only was he in charge of the Chabad funding, but all the other Hasidic sects that were collecting for their representatives in Israel, it would all go through him. They would bring their money to his um, agent, his emissary, whose name was Rabbi Yaakov of Smilian, a very famous Hasidic figure, and he would travel every year personally to Israel and distribute the, the funds. Hop on a flight. Huh? Hop on a flight. Hop on a flight, yeah. It wasn't exactly as simple as a flight. So it was, it was, it was a journey. And uh, the, the, the collections, it seems, from the documents that we have today, would take place every winter. So right after Sukkot, the, the people would go around the communities in Russia collecting all the funds. And then sometime in the winter, uh, they would go to Israel. Now, the Alter Rebbe would write a letter each year to be given out to the Hasidim as a, let's call it a fundraising pitch. Every year he would put together a new letter, basically discussing something about the mitzvah of tzedakah, revealing a new Hasidic thought, another Kabbalistic element, a practical message, something about something inspiring about tzedakah. And the guy who was collecting the funds would give it out in the cities, and people would be inspired. We have today a letter from the Alter Rebbe himself where he testifies that these letters made a great impact. And people would give, you know, because they would read and be inspired, and they would give. So really, from the 1780s uh, all the way through 1802, that's the last letter that we have. There was a tragic incident that happened in 1802. People tried to boycott the Chabad funding. Already back then, there was these issues. And um, because of that, there was a bit of a move, move around in the system of collecting funds, and the Alter Rebbe stopped writing these letters. So 1802 was the last one that we have. But each, each winter, for about 25 years, there were these letters that would come out, and basically original discourses, original insights, from the Alter Rebbe, and they were handwritten, which is very rare, because the Alter Rebbe never wrote any of his talks. He would give, deliver Hasidic discourses, but they would be written by somebody else. These letters were handwritten, so they were extra precious. And letter number three in this book four that we're learning is the first of, of many. 
um, of these letters. It's undated. We don't know the date. Chabad historians, uh, they peg it at either 1799 or 1800. And listen to their proof. It's very interesting. In the letter, the Alter Rebbe quotes the Tanya, Book 1. Book 1 was printed in 1796. So it's obviously after 1796. We have the letters from 96, 97, 98, 1801, and 1802. So just those two years are missing, so it's either one of those. However, they put a disclaimer that it doesn't mention Israel in this letter. Every other tzedakah letter mentions clearly the cause of Israel. This one doesn't mention Israel. So maybe they said it's for a different collection, we don't know, but it's that time period, the late 1700s, early 1800s. And that's what it is. It's a discourse on tzedakah. It starts, like every Hasidic discourse, with a verse. And that's what we're going to be examining tonight. There's a verse in Isaiah, Yeshaya, chapter 59. It says, Vayilbash tzedakah kashiryon v'kova yeshua berosho. God dresses himself with tzedakah, like a coat of armor, and a helmet of salvation he puts on his head. That's the literal meaning. And the way the commentators explain it, it's just simply describing that God is going to do favors for Israel. Tzedakah means a favor that you don't deserve. So God, even though the Jews don't deserve it, He's going to put on a coat of armor of tzedakah and a helmet of salvation and save His people. But the Talmud, the Gemara, sees this verse as describing a quality about tzedakah. Why does it choose to say that tzedakah is like a coat of armor? You could have said, he put, on a, he put on a shirt, he put on pants, I don't know, any article of clothing. Why does it say that it's like a coat of armor? So the Talmud says, how is a coat of armor formed? Back in the old days, chain mail. Right? They used to have these coats of armor that were just straight up metal, but there was no, there was no flexibility, you couldn't move. So they came up with this method where they would make uh, little rings, links, links right? Links of, of metal, mm -hmm. and each link would interlock with other links until it would be this massive uh, coat of, of metal, or mail, really. Chain mail, they called it. And because there were still some little holes, you know, even after you put all these little circles together, you end up with holes, so they would make little, what they called scales, that would seal the holes. So that in the end, you had a very... Um, mobile type of a suit and made up of all these little pieces. So the Talmud says, ah, oh, that's why tzedakah is called a coat of armor. Because just like in the coat of armor, every little piece of metal ends up contributing to a massive, beautiful whole. So with tzedakah, incremental giving, you give a little bit today, a little bit tomorrow, a little bit the next day, every coin ultimately amasses to a huge amount and has an incredible influence. That's the Talmud. The Alter Rebbe, in this essay, in this letter, he examines this from a Kabbalistic point of view. So, the insight, the discourse is strictly Kabbalistic, but it has a very, very practical takeaway at the end. So we're going to dive in for some Kabbalah, and then we're going to dive out for some, some good 
some good inspiration. Okay, here's the Kabbalah 101. The most fundamental, perhaps, contribution of Jewish mysticism to the body of Jewish literature is the concept of God's light. That's the term used. If you learned a little Kabbalah, you hear the terminology or ein sof, the infinite light. Which basically means that God in his essence is beyond relatability to any outside being. The part of Hashem that interacts with the system of worlds and realms as we know it is an expression of himself, is his light. The light is called infinite, or ein sof. If you ever meet infinity, uh, you don't stand a chance. That's how it works. When finite and infinite meet, infinite wins. And finite loses its identity. So in order for God's infinite light to interface with the world in a constructive way, we have what's called in Kabbalah the chain reaction of the world, Hishtal Shalut. Hishtal Shalut basically says that God takes the infinite light and reduces it and reduces it and reduces it further and further on different levels of divine consciousness so that more material, more mundane beings can, can receive it. Every light needs a receptor. So let's just call it, Kabbalah calls it Kalim, vessels. The means by which you can receive light. Or maybe a better way to say it in today's day and age would be energy. God has an energy that he expresses and the energy can be taken at different frequencies depending on how reduced the energy is. So on higher realms, there's a much greater capacity to receive godly light so they get much more of it. The lower we go, till we get to this physical world, we're very limited in our capacity to receive godly light, so we get an extremely, extremely little, bit, little, little amount. But that's the, that's the system. Okay, that's the system of God-world relationship. God in his essence is completely transcendent. The part where the relationship begins is already a diminished light, and that light gets further diminished and further reduced as it descends. In this letter, the Alter Rebbe calls the whole, the whole thing, he calls it the body, gufa. The whole system, the whole um, cosmos, let's call it, spiritual cosmos, is called the body. Everybody has a soul. So we live in the micro, it's my body, my body has its own soul. It's vivifying it, animating it, giving it life. But then the cosmos also have a soul. And the cosmos soul is the light that's beyond the system. So there's the light that is within the system, subject to very strict governing rules, depending on how much capacity you have, that's how much light you receive. But that's all a body. The soul of the body is what's called the transcendent light. The light that doesn't even begin to go into the system, it's totally beyond it. 
Okay, that was deep. But what are we saying? Bottom line? Bottom line, what we're saying is there's two ways that God expresses himself. One in a transcendent way and one in an imminent. Not imminent, imminent. I-M-M-A-N-E-N-T. More present way. The more present way is the makeup. It's the fabric of our existence. The more transcendent way is beyond our existence. But there is a way to get access to this transcendent light. There's a way to meet infinity on its own terms. And that happens through mitzvahs. That happens through a Jew doing a mitzvah. Wrapped to fill in. Talking about that. Learning Torah, what we're doing tonight. Giving tzedakah. You do a mitzvah. Well, tzedakah is the exception. We're going to get to that. <laughs> you, you do a mitzvah, you're accessing infinity. I want to frame it in a very physical way so we can maybe grasp it in, in somewhat. Kabbalah calls mitzvahs God's will. Ratzon ha'elyon. The will of the Almighty. It's, an, it's a very exact metaphor. We use the word will with great precision. We, we observe in reality um, that there are two general ways to exercise influence over somebody else. If I want to have an influence over you. I can choose from two ways. One is with information. I can teach. I can educate. I can inspire. Such that you'll take it in, be inspired, become educated, and then make informed decisions based on the information that I gave you. There's another way that I can exercise influence. Today it doesn't work so much because of our society, but there, there, there is a model where you exercise influence by your will. If there's a master who owns a slave, the master doesn't educate the slave or inspire him to do his bidding. The master wants something, it gets done. Isn't that by force? It is by force. Yeah. It's the master's will that moves things around. There's no, there's no system, there's no steps, there's no process, there's no class. It's just, this is what I want, this is what's happening. So, when I exercise influence through the intellect, through the mind, um, what, what actually happens, if you wanted to speak in philosophical terms, is there's a fusion. Me and you, we fuse. The part of me that understood all these concepts gets passed on to you, enters your consciousness and your makeup, your psyche, and you begin to function based on that you know, new level of awareness that you have. But when I exercise my influence with will, it's very transcendent, it's very removed. That's why, says Kabbalah, mitzvahs are called the divine will. Because when you do a mitzvah, even though we can discover the meaning of mitzvahs, the, um, the great value of mitzvahs, how wonderful they are for our personal development, at the end of the day, they're just God saying, this is what I want, this is what gets done. And because of that, 
because mitzvahs are us listening to God's will, when we do them, we, we access a transcendent light. Because mitzvahs in their essence are a transcendent relationship between God and us. So when we do them, we tap in to that usually inaccessible light. Because we've listened to the will, we've done the bidding, and we get a little piece of it. You had a question, Mike? Or a comment. As scary as it sounds, hmm. that, that, that is the truth. The Rebbe, I wasn't planning to share it, but it's, 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 you, met, you brought it up, it's a beautiful thing. The Rebbe gave a very involved a talk once um, about the attitude we're supposed to have to mitzvahs. You know, are, are we looking for mitzvahs to be meaningful and fluffy and passionate? Or are we looking to um, do the will of our master? Hmm. And he quoted a talk that his father-in-law gave in 1944. A beautiful line where the, uh, the Friedrich Rebbe, the previous Rebbe said that there are two types of mitzvahs. Mitzvahs that God revealed the reason for and mitzvahs that God didn't reveal the reason for. You should do mitzvahs that there's no reason for with the same passion that you do a mitzvah that there is a reason for, and you should do mitzvahs that there is a reason for with the same commitment and obedience as the mitzvahs for which there's no reason for. So he demanded both at every level. In other words, you gotta dig deep, you gotta feel what it is that each mitzvah offers you, but in the end, it's an obedience. And even when you're doing it out of obedience, you gotta hope that it, one day it leads to a point where you can identify with it. So it's, it's the dual reality. It, we're, we're, on, we're, on, we're on a dance. With mitzvahs, we've got to be on a dance. Um, so I'm glad you brought that up because it's an amazing concept. and it's, it's incredible. But whichever way you slice it, mitzvahs are the will of God. So whether you have the meaning or you don't, you're doing something transcendent. And when you're doing something transcendent, you access transcendent light. So the Alter Rebbe says, what's the mystical parallel? Or what effect does this transcendent light have? So he splits it into two, the macro and the micro. He says, when a Jew does a mitzvah, you're affecting the entire spiritual universe. A transcendent light is being brought onto a lower level of consciousness 
and it fuses. He uses the word, it fuses with the body. Remember, the body is the totality of the system. It's kind of like you inject the entire spiritual cosmos with a transcendent injection for a moment. So it gets uplifted. It becomes one with it. He calls it a garment which unites. You know, typically in, in physical world, we observe two kinds of garments. There's garments that stay separate from us, like our clothes that we're all wearing. Those are garments that are separate. We can take them off, put them on at will. We are one clothes today, different clothes tomorrow. It doesn't make a difference. Then you have certain garments that become one, uh, like the shell of certain animals. They're part and parcel of them, a turtle or a snail, even though they can shed them also. So it's not the total harmony. A human body is considered a garment which unites. It fuses with the soul. There's no soul hiding inside the body. You know, it's kind of covering it and it becomes one. So it's a, it's a cloak, it's a garment, this transcendent light, it's beyond, but at the same time it fuses with the totality of the body. Then it also has an influence on the, on the micro. A mitzvah that you do has an influence on you. However, it only has an influence on the part of your soul that remains on high. And the part of your soul, the part of your neshama that remains on high. What it does is it's kind of like a safe deposit box. The fourth rabbi of Chabad, that's what he would call it, a, a kufsa, a deposit box in the higher realms, where the energy that your mitzvah elicits is waiting for you. And when you come upstairs, it's what allows you to experience the revelations of Gan Eden, of paradise. Gan Eden is considered to be a very, very uh, wonderful, experience, godly experience, but kind of like they say in the world today, UV rays, let's say ultraviolet, right? your eyes can't take them in. So if you would just look at them, they would get damaged. In order to experience it, you have to have a certain type of glasses that you're wearing. So in the same way, Gan Eden requires the soul to wear a certain type of glasses. And those glasses are created through mitzvahs. So your mitzvahs accumulate to become your gear. Let's call it your, your equipment for the future world. So mitzvahs have an influence on the, mic, on the macro. They influence the totality of the cosmos. And then they also influence the micro, your specific neshama. But they cannot influence you as you are in this world. Godliness has become so reduced, so diminished, so small in this world that transcendent light that mitzvahs bring out have no place here. They can't, they can't break through. They can't break through. Under any circumstance. Under any circumstance. In this letter, okay? I'm not telling you what it says in other places about other mitzvahs, but here he, the way he talks about it is mitzvahs, there's a barrier. They can help the cosmos at a, as, at a whole. They can help your soul for a future experience. But here and now, no. This was more than 200 years ago, so now... <laughs> um, yeah, now you can say we're even further down. Uh, who knows? The Alter Rebbe says, this is why it says in the Talmud, it's a famous statement. It says, There is no reward for mitzvahs in this world. So typically it's understood to mean that uh, God chooses to reward us not here in the physical world, but he chooses to reward us in the spiritual, you know, it's a greater reward. But the Altar says it's not just that, it's reward or the effect of mitzvahs cannot be perceived in this world. It's not like God chooses and says, you know, I can give you now some or later more, I'm going to give you later more. Not, it can't penetrate. 
our reality, our version of, of physicality doesn't allow mitzvahs to, um, to have, it, have their effect over here. Yeah. Good point to ask a question. Good point to ask a question. Is there any discussion of the indirect impact of mitzvot on our corporal being, on our consciousness, as opposed to what we may in the future? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And, and but they and maybe considered not any form of benefit from mitzvot that are um, realized, if you will. Well, maybe, maybe I should clarify what I said before. When I say that mitzvahs can't penetrate this world, we, we're, we're talking about the Kabbalistic effect. The introduction of God, God's infinity. Of course, the physical act of mitzvahs have an effect on a physical level. The Rambam, you know, who wrote a, a complete work to explain the reasons for the mitzvahs, he, he keeps on emphasizing how mitzvahs help uh, perfect our character, they affect our consciousness on a deeper level, of course. We're talking about the, the, the spiritual accomplishment that a mitzvah has. To introduce or in sof has salvev kol it's called in Kabbalah, the, the, the surround sound, the all-encompassing light. That is what can't make it into this, into this world. So the micro, the, the macro gets a full injection, then the neshama gets a futuristic injection, and the physical yid gets no injection. Which, by the way, as, as an aside, it turns out that the primary beneficiary, Kabbalistically, of a mitzvah is, is the entire cosmos. You know, the neshama gets a little bit for the future, but the, the universe at large benefits tremendously from a mitzvah, which is why, if you studied Kabbalah, you might come across the concept of yichudim, unions. Every morning before davening, we say, L'shem yichud kuchabrichu shchintei. We're doing the davening for the union of God and His Divine Presence and His Shekhinah. Some, some Sephardim even do it, uh, they say it before every mitzvah. Before they eat matzah, they say, we're doing this for the union of God and His Presence. Before they shake a lulav, it's l'shem yichud. It's always another union. And that's what these unions are. Bringing something which is beyond the system into the system. And mitzvahs do that. So we're weaving our spiritual garments now in this world mm -hmm. for the future. Absolutely. The mitzvahs are weaving this. That's a great way to put it. They're weaving the spiritual garments. But no effect here. With one exception. There's one mitzvah that when you do it, it can penetrate the transcendence into this physical universe. And that's tzedakah. Tzedakah accomplishes the impossible. It's impossible. By the system's own rules, it can't handle transcendent light, but tzedakah creates such a garment that allows for transcendent light to come in. Guess how? That's the metaphor of the coat of armor. The coat of armor is, an ar is a garment that's woven with little holes. The little rings have holes. Kabbalistically, that's a metaphor for the fact that it allows, in little measures and in increments, transcendent light through. But when you bring light into the whole system, you're also therefore bringing 
Well, first, first, it's, it seems, it's not expounded on, but it seems that it's momentary. And it seems that it's not directed at you. Your mitzvah doesn't have a personal effect in your own reality. But when you do tzedakah, you're introducing a level beyond, beyond everything into your own life. That's why the Talmud uses the metaphor, I said it before, incremental giving amounts to a great amount. Now, when I said it before, nobody asked, but yeah, that, that's true. I give $100 today, it's $100. And if I give $1 over 100 days, it's still $100. Well, why, is, why is the little amounts you know, greater? And the Alter Rebbe says, because it's not just the sum total of the dollars. There's an overarching effect. When you combine enough finite acts of giving, you can reach infinity. It doesn't work that way in the rest of the world. One plus one plus one plus one, if you keep adding more ones, you don't get to infinity. But with tzedakah, one dollar plus one dollar plus one dollar plus one dollar plus many one dollars equals a hamshacha, a drawing down of ein sof hasovev kolamin, totally removed, totally infinite light of God. I just when you have when you have such a great light coming into such a small place, there's room for it to get distorted. When something so big comes to something so small, it can, be, it can get distracted, and different evil forces can pull on it. That's why the coat of armor has those scales. Each scale covers the whole. So the light seeps through, but then it's immediately covered, immediately contained, so it doesn't go the wrong way. The wrong way, the Alter Rebbe says, can mean twofold. Spiritually, that forces of evil that get their highest, get their life from those, from those injections, they want to grab onto that light, so they get put, put away. But even physically, sometimes when you get extraordinary amounts of goodness in your life, you're prone. If you don't control it properly, to experience damage. How many people do we know today that win the lottery and go crazy? The Midrash says that the meaning of the Birkat Kohanim, Yivarechecha Hashem Yishmerecha, God should bless you and guard you, is exactly that. God should give you a blessing, but He should also guard it. it gives a parable of a king who called over a servant who was ministering for him in a far-off country, called him to the palace and he gave him a huge gift, 100 gold coins, but he didn't offer him any protection, any security. And so when he left the palace, the robbers pounced on him and grabbed him. So we say, God should bless you with wealth, but then he should also guard it. He should keep it safe. So in the same way, when we give tzedakah, we're, we're, we're bringing in this incredible, incredible um, flow of divine energy. But it's got to be taken care of. So the coat of armor has those, has those scales that seal it closed. So that's the inner mystical, deeper, Kabbalistic meaning of Vayilbash Tzedakah Kashir Yon, that Tzedakah is compared to a coat of armor. Because Tzedakah can accomplish what no other mitzvah can accomplish by virtue of the fact that it allows a little bit of the transcendent light to seep through. But then it goes even better and even further. 
the end of the verse says that God puts on a helmet of salvation. Kova Yeshua. What is a helmet of salvation? So, in short, because the Alter Rebbe doesn't spend much time on it, there's a story that the Alter Rebbe was sitting with his grandson, Betzamach Tzedek. Betzamach Tzedek's mother gave her life to keep the Alter Rebbe alive. There was the creed in heaven that the Alter Rebbe would, would lose his life for the work that he was doing, spreading Hasidus. And his daughter, Betzam Dvoralea on Rosh Hashanah, um, called together a minion of the Alter Rebbe's closest disciples, and she opened up the ark, and she said, I'm giving my life for my father so he can continue living mm. and doing his work. But I'm making a condition with God that he has to take care of my son, Mendel, who would later become the third Rebbe of Chabad and educate him. And so he did. The grandfather and grandson spent incredible amounts of time together. And there was one time when the Alter Rebbe was to have, had his grandson on his lap, and he decided to play a game with him. And he said, Vu is Zayda. Where is Grandpa? So the little kid, he was five years old, he pointed to his grandpa. So he said, Alter Rebbe said, no, that's Grandpa's nose. Where's Grandpa? So he pointed to his eyes. No, that's Grandpa's eyes. Where's Grandpa? Every body part that he pointed to, the Alter Rebbe kept on saying, that's Grandpa's this, that's Grandpa's that. So at one point, the little boy just jumped off of the Alter Rebbe's lap, making as if he gave up on the game. And the Alter Rebbe got up to leave the room. And Alter Rebbe left the room. The little boy said, Grandpa! And Zayda turned around and he said, Ah, oh, there's Grandpa! <laughs> and Alter Rebbe used that later in teaching Hasidus when he would say that when somebody turns their attention to you, you're getting their essence. You do a specific act, you relate to someone, you have a conversation, we're getting a window into your, into your being. But when you turn your attention, when you divert from something you've been doing to the other, now I have you. The word Yeshua in Hebrew, the root, is Shin and Ayin. Shin and Ayin in Hebrew means to turn. Vayisha Hashem, in the beginning of Genesis, we talk about God turning to Abel, to Hevel, to his, to his korban, Vayisha. So Yeshua indicates the turning of God's attention. Tzedakah doesn't just bring in a transcendent light. It gets us God himself's attention. Tzedakah is like the little boy calling out to grandpa, Grandpa, when you give tzedakah, you say Hashem, and his entire essence turns around to you. So tzedakah really accomplishes the impossible. It brings in those things that we couldn't even hope to bring into our reality at any level. But tzedakah gets it. That's why every morning in davening we say, Zorea tzedakot, matzmiach yeshuot. That little paragraph before Shema. Zorea tzedakot, you plant tzedakah, what grows? Yeshua, the turn. You put in tzedakah, you get God to turn to you. And that's the Alter Rebbe's Kabbalistic take. And after you hear that, don't you want to give a little tzedakah? And the Rebbe would say, that's very mystical. This whole idea is beautiful. What does it mean practically? Practically, it means that tzedakah, just like on the spiritual level, it accomplishes the impossible. On the physical level, giving tzedakah accomplishes blessings that are impossible in our reality. Things that you can't envision. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make sense. I can't afford to give this amount of tzedakah. Or... I need something in my life that's just impossible by physical means to solve it, and you give tzedakah, that 
that, that brings out these, um, these incredible responses. And the Rebbe himself would push people in those ways. He would say, anybody saw the Living Torah last week? They put out a video each week and they put it in, played an incredible clip where um, the Rebbe said that he wants to get funds to help one of his causes. I forget what it was, something in Israel. And he said, I don't usually do this, but I'm going to ask everybody to write their name on a piece of paper and put the amount that you pledge. <laughs> and I'm going to read it. And if I don't like it, I'm going to announce in public <laughs> what I think you should give. And it's on recording. And uh, this woman, who's, she's, she's telling the story, her father was a great, very, very wealthy man. His name was David Deitch. And he had written in an amount on that pledge that was way beyond his means. It, didn't, it, it, was, it was completely beyond anything he could have imagined. He gave it in. He passed it up. And you hear the Rebbe on recording. David Deitch, I want ten times the amount that you wrote on your note. <laughs> Ten times. He, he didn't even, not a question of, had, he didn't have the money. But the Rebbe said it like that. So right after the Fabringen, he went to the bank, he got a loan, didn't have the money, got a loan. Got a loan, wrote the check, sent it into the Rebbe. And two weeks later, there was, he had a textile factory. There was an incredible fire in, 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 another, in a Boston, right? in, in another company, and from one truckload of his own textile that he sold, he made back all the money plus more. And he became extremely wealthy. This is what tzedakah is. Tzedakah accomplishes that which is impossible. You're supposed to give 10% to tzedakah? If you can, you give 20%. The Rebbe once said, it doesn't work that you make the income and then you give the tzedakah. Mm -hmm. He said, by deciding how much tzedakah to give, you will decide your income. You can decide your income. You tell Hashem, it's the one mitzvah that the Torah says you can test God. Test God. Tell Him, I'm going to give this year $20,000 to tzedakah. You are going to make $100,000. Not once you make the money, then you start deciding how much you're going to give. You give, the, you give the money and then you get it. Why? It doesn't make sense. It's not natural. That's what tzedakah is. Tzedakah is the impossible becoming possible. L'chaim.